EP Ag Chats, brought to you by Air EP. Conversations that connect generations of experience and innovation in agriculture on the Air Peninsula. The good bits, the bad bits, and everything in between. This project is supported by FRRR through funding from the Australian Government's Future Drought Fund. G'day, I'm Daniel Bergman, a young farmer from uh, 20 k's north of Sejuna. I'm here speaking with Peter Coleman, a farmer from Maramakla, which is about 40 k's east of Sejuna. In this conversation, we're going to explore Peter's family history in the egg sector and his input into the farming sector and what he, he has done. How's your current season shaping up? It is shaping up very well. So, yes, it's going to be one of the best we've ever had. So my previous best one was 1983, which is a long time ago. So if the spring rains keep coming, then we're going to be in for a ripper. Yeah, yeah, she's looking good out my way too. When did your family start on the farming on the West Coast? I'm a third generation farmer. So I've got my father, Frank, and his dad uh, was known as Harry. I guess he's he's come from the Barossa Valley originally. So his, so my great grandfather was one of the Lutherans that escaped persecution and ended up in the Barossa Valley. So my grandfather, Charles Henry, known as Harry, was the youngest of 12 kids. So they had a farm near Freeling. He hung around there for a while working on fruit blocks and cutting timber for river boats and doing other odd jobs. But then he was offered uh, share farming over this part of the world. This country was actually owned by Poynton and Claxton, so they were speculators, I guess, in the land after it came off the pastoral lease. He caught a boat, sailing boat, to Murat Bay, which is Sejuna. That's what it was known as then. Came over to go share farming. Back in those days, it was just speargrass plains and um, they were clearing land by by axe, so things were pretty tough back then. So they had a horse and wagons, uh, no water for stock. There was no no reticulated water, and if they wanted to go to Sejuna to get supplies, that was an eighty k round trip. It would take two days to go and get supplies. That's whenever the boat came in. That's Grandpa's story would have been a pretty challenging time farming. My grandmother, Lydia, as she was known, came to Matamukla as an 18-year-old as the first school teacher. When the school was set up, my grandfather was on the committee to try and organise a school and he was pretty keen to have the first school teacher as his wife. So he eventually convinced her. He was actually 21 years older than than my grandmother, so he must have been a good talker, I reckon. They married after she was there for a few years, and they end up having five kids. My father, Frank, is the eldest child, and he had a, another brother who came back on the farm for a little while. He went to school at Matamukla, then went away to college for a couple of years. The challenge in getting to Adelaide in the time, we actually had a railway line then, which wasn't there when Grandpa first came, catch the train from Punterby, the nearest siding, down to Port Lincoln, and then catch the boat to Port Adelaide, the train to Adelaide, and then walk to Kent Town, where, where he went to school. 
similar to your parents' history, I yeah. guess they've, they've been around for a long time and from German extraction, seeing your name ends in man with a double N. Probably on the same boat, on the same <laughs> ship over, yeah. Yeah, so well, yours from the Barossa as well? Yeah, they were, um, Tanunda area, I think, yeah. But yeah, same similar story with Charlie. Yeah, it wasn't until the pipeline came from Port Lincoln that that they could actually run stock and then the dog fence because dingoes were an issue. On the other side, my mother was a Blumpson, so Grandpa Harry and my grandfather Joe Blumpson were both on the first District Council of Murat Bay in Sejuna. Dad was also a councillor and involved in many community and industry things, as was his father. Yeah, everyone on in the Sojourner area seems to have a block of Franks with Coolmans or Franks is scattered around. What's any story on on that? The base has always been here at Buttermuckler, but yeah, I guess he owned a bit of land after he left managing the farm here, so he had a a few blocks of land. Here he went hobby farming, it started out, so that was up the what is it, the road? Calambi Road. Yeah, Calambi, um, yeah. So, yeah, his hobby farm was 4,500 acres, which was a bit of a joke. But um, <laughs> then then it actually grew to about 16,000 with a lot of country further west. So. Yeah, yeah, um, Snow Chandler there's got that one. That's the original hobby farm, is it? Yeah. That, that's correct, yeah. There was two blocks there. So he did, didn't want to have sheep when he first moved off the farm, but I eventually convinced him that they would be better for his farming so um yeah. he did did eventually have some sheep yep so had a few blocks and since um got rid of that and just focused down here at Matamukla at the moment yeah so he came back on the farm and his brother John did for a little while but then he pursued other interests so Frank being the eldest ended up running the farm he married my mum who was Laura Blumpson her parents, Joseph and May, were also pioneers in the district and they farm near Laura Bay, which is my mum's namesake as well, or what she was known as, which is what the kids thought they should call her. So she was the youngest of seven and she had a pretty tough upbringing with her father dying when she was six and her mother died when she was 13. So she had to leave school at six to keep house for her brother. So she had a pretty tough time of it. but. Yeah, I guess that was the, the way she was, I guess, a conservative woman and knew, knew the tough times and worked around that. Frank was a successful farmer doing much of the clearing. The little bit Grandpa had done with his crew would have all been done with axe. And by the time Dad came along, because he hated horses, uh, which is... A good learning experience when you come home from school. So um, by the time they had crawlers and chains, he would have cleared a fair bit of country here. Yeah, certainly grew the area that was available by clearing the Mallee scrub. He also shared the passion for grains research and was also an early adopter of technology like I am. And I guess Grandpa must have been a bit of a goer to achieve what he did in his time too. Yeah, it runs in the family, the sound of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess back to my story, I'm the middle child. I had an older sister, Wendy, and a younger one, Robbie. Went to Matamukla School, 
and then boarded at Westminster till I did year 12 and then came back on the farm. I knew I wanted to be a farmer back when I was seven. I remember reading this this book and said, yep, that's that's what I wanted to, to do. But I guess others know probably when they're three or four and driving around in the ute. I came home, started as a share farmer and my living wage was $50 a week. And we didn't didn't have many good seasons for quite a while. When I found out about a farm management course at Roseworthy a couple of years later, so that ticked all of the boxes for me, improving my farming knowledge. That was a, a bit of a break from farming here. And when I'd finished doing that, after graduation, I took the opportunity to work on a cropping and cattle farm in in the Western Darling Downs in Queensland to experience a, it as an employee, I guess. When I returned after being up there as a 22-year-old, my father had bought his hobby farm, must have had confidence in me, and he handed over the management of the, the bigger Matamakwa farm while he went up to his hobby farm north of Sejuna. Three in the deep end, so to speak. Yeah, well, that was, yeah, I I guess... If you want to know everything, you ask a teenager. So I was probably a bit, a bit like that at that stage <laughs> after having a bit of education. Yeah, after spending your time up, up north, yeah, learning everything. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it was interesting to see there. Um, they were certainly into no-till up, up there and that was something that one of the few things that I brought back to, to try and take on. Yeah. As a young farmer, has come back with a bunch of new ideas. How open was your father to him? Yeah, he was reasonably open and, and good to discuss things. I remember one thing. I came back and said, we don't need crop insurance anymore. We haven't had any claims. And he didn't listen to me and we had the biggest claim we've ever had. But, no, he he was certainly interested in improving the farm and I guess by improving production is how we can make the the biggest gains in this country. His involvement in grains research as well made his mind open to, to these things as well. I'm sure he probably shook his head at a few things that we did, but looking back at some of these things, the changes that we've done over time, so from trying to go conservation tillage, I guess it was probably in the early days and and being one of the early adopters, I guess, by taking on chisel ploughs and spraying out weeds so back spray topping was a very new way of controlling weeds instead of using tillage and taking on even new chemicals that that came in yeah he was certainly open to it but when he was doing his farming on his hobby farm he was much more conservative than what i was doing in in the types of things that he was doing just looking back in history from the changes since I've been farming from high analysis fertiliser, so changing from single single fertiliser to having actually nitrogen in the fertiliser and trying to go conservation tillage, so do away with burning, which was a big part of our farming system. And glyphosate, been using glyphosate since 1981, so it's been been around for a while and adopting other technology from 
going to use knife points compared to using full cut tillage, which I'm sure a lot of the other people driving past my paddocks because I've got a, a significant frontage to Highway 1 and people can, I don't hear what they say in their cars or anything else, but probably just as well because it's none of my business, but they'd probably be wondering what's going on when we're not tilling the soil properly. Seems to be working though, yeah. I've noticed those um, lentils on your property, is it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah the, I've got lentils. There. I've got lentils in the front paddock and they are looking fantastic. So they went in on some good moisture and they're going to be extremely profitable. Is so that the not, first time you've put them on, tried them? No, it's actually the third year I've tried lentils. Oh, yeah. um, so last year they they about covered costs. So I remember even back in Dad's day when he was putting ideas for research, we wanted a profitable grain legume that we can actually grow in this area and this is the closest thing that we've got to that and this year if it all comes off I'm going to do very well out of it I guess my main aim is covering costs on that one but yep they're looking very good at the moment. Your farm here located 40 k's east of Sedona how many acres have you have you got there? At the moment we've, I've certainly grown it a fair bit we're farming 15,900 hectares, of which 2,000 is lease. We've got a biggest cropping program ever in at the moment. Got 10,800 hectares into wheat, barley and uh, lentils, which look like they might be a success this year. And we've got lots of medic-based pastures for, we've got about 2,500 self-replacing merino ewes. It's a big yeah, mainly cropping, but we've got a few sheep that are complementary. How do we do it? I guess ideally no tool using a seed hook bar uh, with liquids. Using phosphoric acid as the main source of pea because our soils are calcareous sandy loams and with a pH of about eight and a half or better. And that really locks up the phosphorus. So by using a liquid form of phosphorus, which we get in phos acid, it's certainly more available. We use variable rate for seed and fertiliser as well because we've got quite variable country from the tops of the hills down to the, to the heavy flats. One of the other things I do different is chaff carts behind the headers for weed seed management and keep some of that for roughage for the sheep either in the paddock or or bale it up that's the main things we're doing at the moment oh being a third generation farmer did you feel a pressure to continue on the legacy or was the their love always on the farming yeah i guess i've always wanted to be a farmer but the real challenge that i'm dealing with now is the succession challenge so i've got two daughters who are based in adelaide and aren't interested in managing a farm, trying to work out what the path forward is in either leaving it to them and with a manager who can do all of the day-to-day stuff or whether I'll be the one who'll have to put up the for sale sign on all of it. That's the challenge at the moment. But it certainly is an obligation to have a farm passed on to you which means you've got to stay here. But I remember 
challenging dad one day about why in the hell didn't you stay in the Barossa Valley because that's pretty <laughs> premium country. But he said out of all his brothers and everything else, I think Grandpa actually did better financially than any of the others who stayed there or, or went yeah. up into the Riverland. So this is certainly challenging country. But That was one of my work. questions was living where you do, what motivates you to continue farming on the West Coast? Yeah, I guess it's... I've been here because of my heritage, I guess, and I guess you learn how to farm the country. It's certainly challenging. It's certainly a high-risk, high-reward area, and when it's good, it's very good, like hopefully we can pull it off. So this might be a one-in-20 year where we can get good good yields and good good prices, and that'll keep us going for another five or ten. <laughs> but, yeah, it's still profitable in the long run so we've learned how to manage it even though our yields haven't really improved much since dad was farming in the 60s so it's certainly frustrating at times certainly waiting for an opening rain and probably the worst is when you've committed your crop seeing all the potential disappear so the lack of spring rains is a real disappointment when that doesn't come and you can see the potential there and end up with a, a third of the crop that you actually could have so you go from a and what could have been a profitable year to a loss so that's probably the most frustrating yeah. times and then you get your spring rains when you're trying to harvest it <laughs> that's not spring rains anymore. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah after being here for a while you've got a fair idea how to farm the country i'm certainly been a bit been around a long time if i've been here since 1975 so i've seen a fair few seedings has has there been any one big innovation that has really made your farming easier reflecting back on lots of things that we've done i said probably the chemicals have helped a lot in grass weed control and knockdown so we're not actually doing so much tillage I guess that was would relate back to being on the soil board too, where we try to minimise the damage to the soil. So by doing that, and then I guess now we've got ryegrass using treflan is is good. But a big lifesaver in driving is certainly the GPS. So I was certainly an early adopter there, and going back to when we're actually driving by a light bar as opposed to steering so now we've got rtk steering and we can drive back within two centimeter accuracy which is pretty pretty amazing to do that now and that also enables us to direct the inputs a lot better too by using precision ag by having zones based on yield and where the crops grow is and yield well that's where we fertilize that's probably the, the big things Probably on the other side, any major challenges that you've had and how did you overcome them? But I know the 80s was pretty dry, wasn't it? 88 was very bad. Yeah, yeah, we've had a, had a few pretty lean ones. Probably looking back at the tonnages there, which I'm just flicking through now, 88 was actually better than 99. 99 for me was really tough. And having droughts backing up, we've had a few 
well below average years in a row and that cuts back your progress and and your enthusiasm a bit about going forward. So that's certainly the challenges. So when I first came home, we had, I think it was seven years before I was home for a good year all the way through. So from 75, 76, 77, I was away at A College for 78, 79 in Queensland for for another year and then back running the farm and that was dry as well. So it was a long, long time between seeing a good year all the way through. I guess that's about surviving in this country is having good equity and adjusting your spending to the season. And I guess the, the worry is these days we've got lots of inputs we put in up front, so there's not, not much we can't spend. It's just deciding not to sow a crop is probably the, the biggest thing we can do. We're probably doing a lot better job running sheep these days, understanding their nutrition and looking after them. I guess in the earlier days of farming, we used to build the numbers up and then sell them next drought so we can actually manage them a lot better now and by feeding and managing them. Off-farm, what's your involvement in the off-farm ag sector? Certainly been involved in lots of things and... Grains research has been the biggest interest of mine. So being involved even in the early days from the Ag Bureau movement, so when that was working a lot better, was also involved with United Farmers and Stock Owners or SAF Grains or whatever it's called these days, um, GPSA. I was involved locally on, on that. So starting off locally, I was on the inaugural soil board with your uncle i think when that was set up so looking after the soil which covered the streaky bay and sojourner district council so that was more into the district side of things going on from there i was involved with a strategy committee which was after a few droughts air peninsula had some i think they had 11 million dollars in funding to distribute as a soil board rep I was assisting in spending that and that was certainly an interesting look in dealing with a government or two different governments as well. And as a result of that, I was encouraged to apply for the Australian Rural Leadership Program, which I was successful. So that was back in 98. That was another part of my education doing doing that two-year course, travelling over lots of Australia and with a very diverse group of people. We ended up going to China and Japan afterwards. That was certainly opened up your mind and allowed you to see from the big picture point of view, I guess, so not just stuck on your little farm and your little problem with Rhizoctonia or or whatever else you're having happen on the farm at the moment. It's certainly a different perspective when you view it and yeah, whether it's grains or somebody else who's dealing with sugar a lot of or some other industries they or fish they all have the same issues and in how they grow and uh, research and development yeah that was a, a great learning curve said you went to kenya as well yeah i've had the opportunity to do a bit of overseas travel the first one was 
went to South Africa and South America with Western Australia no-till, visited lots of no-tillers in both of those countries, which is probably where the, the no-till movement really got going, was in, in Brazil and Argentina, lots of discs over there. It's interesting to see how they farm on that beautiful soil and rainfall that they have there. So that was the first trip. Then I did a trip with another consultant to to Kenya. So they've got pretty good climate there too, um, with a good sunshine sitting there on the equator. The last trip, probably the most interesting one, was one with Rabobank. I was fortunate enough to be offered a trip to Brazil and they have a global masterclass. So this was in 2019, just before COVID took off. It was focused in Brazil and we had Rabobank clients from all over the world, Germany, Holland, Congo, New Zealand, Australia, and they gave us a great tour of some of their clients' businesses in in Brazil to see the scale and how they operate their businesses over there was eye-opening and we had lots of great speakers. So that's been a a great education and opportunity I've had. Did you bring anything back from there to implement on your farm? Yeah, certainly from Brazil. They were probably second and third generation farmers and they were massive farms and incredibly profitable but the biggest thing that I brought back was that I needed to systemize my farm I needed to have more procedures and be a lot more organized as a result of that I I did find a course that offered that that was offered by Farm Owners Academy about systemizing things and that has certainly helped a little bit but it's just how much effort you put into it and is what you get out of it. I've actually gone on and taken on a, another course, which I thought I'm nearly too old to be studying farming, but my partner, Leanne, was keen. And so we're about halfway through doing the Platinum Masterclass with farm owners, which is not the technical side of farming, but that's more about what your vision is and what your goals are. Then it's about systems and benchmarking, getting all of the big levers right. So it certainly challenged me in a few different ways. I thought I had a fair idea about it, but there's a few different things. Certainly the soft side of business management was probably lacking. That's certainly been a, been a challenge and another, another commitment since my industry involvement's backed off at the moment. What are your biggest on-farm successes? Oh, biggest on-farm success, I guess, still surviving is is the first one, reflecting back on where it was when I started. So the first year I was farm manager, or even when I came back from school, we were cropping 1,200 hectares. So when I started this farm manager, we were doing 2,000. Now I'm doing five times that many with one more staff member. So While I've been farming, I've been intensifying the cropping. So we're cropping about two-thirds of the area. The frustrating thing is that the yields haven't increased much, doing a much better job running sheep. Yeah. So you were born and raised in Sojourner in the area. Um, You decided to move to Adelaide. 
what's the reasoning on that? It's not very um, common. <laughs> no, no, it was circumstances at the time. So, yeah, I was married and had two daughters and at the time, uh, just before 2000, we were having marriage issues and as a way of retaining the marriage, I moved to Adelaide where my wife, who was from the city, wanted to go back there. So by moving to Adelaide, uh, that meant I had to farm in a very different way and also opened up the opportunity for me to be involved in the industry in more state-based things. By moving to Adelaide, I had to hand over the responsibility of the day-to-day operations to, to my staff. The industry involvement that I got involved with was South Australian SAF Grains, or SAF, yeah, South Australian Farmers Federation Grains Council. And then I was also involved with the South Australian Grains Industry Trust Fund, which I had a, a long involvement there. So they invest money into grains research, they invest the levy. So that was a very rewarding committee. Ended up being chair of that for quite a few years. Uh, after I finished up there, I ended up applying for and being successful in joining the GRDC Southern Panel. Similarly, grains research, but the our area of interest had grown from state to a bit of national, but mostly South Australia, Victoria and Tasmania, the grains research on the ground. So I had the opportunity to do the Australian Institute of Company Directors course and became a, a fellow of that. So that's understanding about how businesses work. So that was another opportunity of being there. But back to running the farm, I guess by operating it remotely, travelling back and forth. So that's a an eight-hour drive or, or a flight on Kendall or Regional Express, as it is now. It's a bit of a challenge, but by being remote, you actually end up having an opportunity to be more of a CEO of the business than, than the manager by seeing it from a distance and not having your feet in the ground there. And it's mostly work. I'm still farming and most things get done probably 95% of the way that I would get them done if I was here on the ground all the time. And I have the opportunity to dine out at lots of different places by living in Glenelg. So there's lots of places that I can go and dine and walk on the beach in the morning. It's been great. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, it, it's also a, a way to get off the farm and relax and clear your head a bit so you can think a bit better on your decisions and stuff. Yeah, that's that's right. To, to think about it from a CEO's perspective, so whereas you're looking from above from the helicopter view, you can see things differently. And being a, a big collector of data from lots of different things, from rainfall to crop records, you can sit and analyse and, and do that without being tempted to go and check the sheep or do something else. So there's a chance to do that. Yeah, by moving to Adelaide, we got another seven years out of our marriage and the kids were nearly leaving school before we separated and I got divorced. After that, I met Leanne, who's also from a 
farming area down the southeast and she's been my partner since then and was able to go to Kenya with her in 2010. She's been my support in driving me back and forth to the farm. Recently, we've actually, as part of not retirement, but we've bought a lifestyle block, which wasn't the same size as Dad's, but we've got 62 acres near Mount Compass, so which is a, was set up as a horse block, but it's got a nice house on it. So it's a five-bedroom house. I use the neighbour's cattle there. I've got a couple of dams and a quarter of it is actually scrub and creek with a good rainfall area. So that was something that's lacking here where we only get 293 mil is our average rainfall. So to go to 600 mil and it's nice and green and that's a chance for all of our kids to access there so we can meet them there and they can have a country fix. So that's only an hour for all of our kids to get there. So that's a great chance to spend some family time there. And now I've got a, got a grandson, Jack. So he's two years old now, but it's a big imposition to expect him to be a farmer. I'll have to work it out without Jack. How important do you feel it is to have a partner that is supportive and keen on the farm? Uh, yeah, it's, it's good to have somebody who has the same values. Julianne, my wife, certainly supported me for a, for a long time, but I guess her roots were in, in Adelaide and, and there's limited opportunities in that country and which you take your hat off to all the people who, who are here and lots of people spend time supporting their sporting club and school and get involved, but there's certainly a lot more opportunities in the city, which is which drags a lot of our young people away and I guess I've been dragged that way too because there's lots more to offer there. So I understand that you have a uh, farm advisory board. Uh, tell us about that. After Dad died in 2013, so he was a great sounding board for me, I realised it would be good to have other people giving input to my business. After doing a course with people who are talking about advisory boards so most people would choose to have other family members maybe their accountant and bank manager on there and that wasn't wasn't what I needed so uh, my advisory board is a little bit different where I've asked three leading growers from Air Peninsula to be on my board so it's probably a little bit more technical but they are all very astute business people certainly can add different ideas to the business that's been going since 2014 so we're just having two meetings a year on that and they can certainly give me some high level strategy issues although sometimes we get down in the weeds and it's good to get reinforcement on some of the things we we do on the farm there was a story written about my farm advisory board and now I'm also sitting on a board in Western Australia and one on York Peninsula as a farmer to provide some input there. So, yeah, it, they're always fun. A lot of work in preparing for it, in doing all of the papers to get ready. It takes the best part of a week to get ready and go through it in my mind, uh, which is a bit like having a cleaner come to your house and you get it all tidy and all sorted out before. But, yeah, you doing all of the work and reflecting back on what's happened in the last six months and 
looking at yields and rotation options and other things. So it certainly adds value to my business, I think. If you could go back in time, I guess, what advice would you give to yourself? Certainly have a go, but I certainly did that. I guess as you get older, I guess the other one is about having experiences. So it's not about how many dollars you've got in the bank or how many hectares you've sown or or what yield you've got. It's about having experiences. As my time on this earth is at the shorter end, I need to do all of those things instead of flogging myself trying to make the most money out of farming here. Yeah. Thanks a lot for your time. It's it's very interesting, your story. Really appreciate it. And I know of a few people that are, would be interested in hearing this, definitely. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, I've certainly had a very fortunate life and uh, had a, uh, lots of opportunities presented to me. So, yeah, thank you and all the best for the rest of the season. Cheers, you too. For more information about Air EP and to get involved with your local research committee or receive our e-newsletters, check out the Air EP website airep.com.au for our contact details and get in touch. We're always happy to chat.